Hey, as they're exiting, will you turn with me to John chapter 12? Gospel of John chapter 12. We still have a bunch of uh, Gospel of John journals back here. If you need one, if you're a note taker, I encourage you to hop up, grab one of those off of our table back here. Uh, John 12, we're going to be finishing out this chapter today, uh, starting in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The word of the Lord. So I don't know about you guys, but as I have gotten older, I have noticed that my memory is not what it used to be. And in particular, I, I, I think I do like some kind of memory dump every two years or so. Uh, it, and it seems to be that, like, if, I, if I've only sort of known you casually, but I haven't seen you or talked to you or heard about you or bumped into you or anything like that for at least two years, it's like my mind just goes, <laughs> and it's gone. And so I've had this 
situation pop up recently, like several times recently, where I will be somewhere and I'll, I'll see somebody because apparently like the face is still in there somewhere. I'll see somebody and go, I, I know I should know that person and I should know their name and things about them and, and where I know them from. And yet all of that information is gone. Uh, does anybody else have this at all? Yeah. So. I don't know what, what the deal is with that. I don't know if some of that relates to like the fact that I've worked in churches for a long time and in big churches where there are lots of people who I'm, I'm kind of casually acquainted with, not, not like in our community, but in these environments where I kind of know people and, and then you see them out of context and you're like, ah, I feel like I should know who that person is, but it's just gone. I, like I have no clue whatsoever. That just seems to be popping up more frequently for me. Uh, but actually, I don't think it's just me. I, I think this is really a quirk that most human beings seem to have. We all can be notoriously bad at remembering things accurately. One interesting thing we do is misremember events. Not only can we get the details of past events wrong, we can we can actually like write ourselves into things that didn't even happen uh, or situations that didn't even occur. Uh, or maybe we can find ourselves mentally in stories that are only sort of partially true. I, I, you may remember a few years ago, uh, the NBC Evening News anchor Brian Williams uh, was, was removed from his position because he had told this story on David Letterman of being involved in a helicopter crash in Iraq, that he was in Iraq reporting and that he was in a helicopter that went down. And he told this story in detail uh, on late night TV. And then a, a, a soldier who had been on the helicopter just wrote on Facebook, hey, bro, I don't remember you being on my helicopter. <laughs> And so it, it started this huge scandal, like, what's going on here? And, and Brian Williams, in his apology, said, because as it turned out, he had been in Iraq at the time. He had been on a helicopter. He was just in the helicopter that was behind the one that had been shot down. He landed safely. Everything was fine. But what he said in his apology was, I've viewed the footage of that so much, and I have like seen myself on video at the crash site, and 12 years has passed, and in my mind, I have somehow conflated these two events. So he didn't say, hey, my bad, I was trying to make myself look good. He, he, he said, no, I've, something has happened in my brain where these two events have come together. Now, most people went, whatever, dude. Like, no one believed that at the time. But a couple years ago, Malcolm Gladwell, on his uh, Revisionist History podcast, talked about that specific story and about how that's actually a fairly common thing on some level that, that happens to people, that we, in our minds, we, we have put together this conflation of stories and there, there are various reasons why that I'll get into in a moment that we potentially do this but but it is a thing that happens now is it what happened with Brian Williams who knows um, but but there is a reality that we are inclined to do that kind of thing there's also a form of collected misremembering that's called the Mandela effect uh, you, if you've been around the internet at all, you've probably seen some of this. Uh, it refers to uh, Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, and at some point, this big group of people on the internet seemed to think that Nelson Mandela was dead, that he had died in like the 1990s. People remembered his funeral being on TV, uh, but Nelson Mandela was still alive, right? 
and he didn't die until like 2013 or, or something like that. And so some psychologists coined the term the Mandela effect for this phenomenon where there's this sort of collective misremembering. Uh, and I want to show you uh, just a few images um, here. I can take uh, just a few images uh, of just some of this, and you've maybe seen some of these before, but, but most people remember Looney Tunes being T-O-O-N-S. They're, they're cartoons, right? So it's Looney Tunes, but it has always been Looney Tunes, T-U-N-E-S. So that may be just uh, that's the same word. That's, that's a pretty easy one. But man, there are tons of people who remember pe the peanut butter being called Jiffy. And, and still refer to it as Jiffy. It's never been known as Jiffy. It's always been Jiff. Uh, this is my favorite one, right? Uh, I, I distinctly remember the Berenstein Bears, uh, which was a lovable family of apparently Jewish bears. Um, <laughs> it has always been, however, the Berenstein Bears, and I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. Like the, I think that is some kind of a glitch. This is my favorite one. Everybody remember uh, the 90s number one comedian, Sinbad. Uh, for some reason, this huge group of people remembers Sinbad being in a movie in the 1990s where he played a genie and the movie was called Shazam. Uh, this is like, uh, just like mass numbers of people remember this happening. Uh, it never happened. What you're probably thinking of is the movie Kazam with Shaq, uh, which I wouldn't recommend. It's not great. Um, so, so this is the Mandela effect. It's like this big group of people, like you've conflated things together. I kind of remember this movie. Uh, the guy's name is Sinbad, right? Like, so surely he's in the genie movie. Uh, so we, we conflate these things together. Psychologists say that there are three primary reasons why we misremember things. Uh, the first is selfishness. First is just selfishness. We tend to remember events that paint us in a positive light, or we tend to remember the, the event in a way that paints us in a positive light, I should say. Um, for example, we will distinctly remember all the hurtful things that another person has said to us, and yet forget the things that we may have said to them. This could be what's going on in the Brian Williams story, that it's just a selfish thing. I'm trying to retell this story in a way that paints me as kind of a hero or in a positive light in some form or fashion. Um, it may not be that you consciously are lying, that you are aware that you're telling something that isn't the whole truth, um, but that your memories have become uh, formed in such a way that you are perhaps viewed more positively than you should be. So selfishness. The second one is what psychologists call schemas. Uh, psychology today says that schemas are mental constructs that help us make sense of the world. It's just kind of my way of viewing things, my lens, my worldview, maybe you could say. Um, sometimes if the details of an event conflict with my prevailing biases, my prevailing schema, then it is possible that I will remember the event differently so as not to upset my internal biases. Does that make sense? And then the third is what's called social contagion. Uh, we often remember things in community with other people, as we just talked about with the Mandela effect. Um, but because we all have slightly different memories of an event, things can get distorted like a big game of telephone. And uh, it can be hard to tell the difference between what I actually remember and what I have been told about an event. 
Um, or for me, I have some distinct memories from my childhood, but I, 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 I have some genuine speculation as to whether or not they are genuine memories or if it is because I have seen photos from events. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So, so there is this sort of social uh, collective contagion. Um, sometimes this is called the lost in the mall effect. The lost in the mall effect because a psychologist did an experiment with his own family where he sat down with individual family members and he uh, recalled to them, supposedly, a story of when his younger brother had been lost in the mall as a kid. And so he, he retells this story to the individual family members, and then he asks them to tell the story from their own perspective. And so each family member then retells the story of that time his little brother got lost in the mall as a kid. However, the story was a lie. Like, it had never happened, and it was just a big experiment as he shared in detail this thing that had supposedly happened and said, don't you remember that? Don't you remember what, you know, people were inclined to go, yeah, I think I do, and then they would start to sort of build their own mental story. So it's really fascinating how we do this and, and why we do this. Why are we talking about this today? Well, we're talking about this because in today's text, we witness a moment of what I think is sort of collective delusion uh, or collective misremembering. And you might have missed this as we even went through the text this morning. Um, but it largely seems to be the product of an event conflicting with a group's established schema or a group's established schema specifically of the Messiah. Literally, in our text today, a booming voice from heaven speaks. That only happens three times in the Gospels. A booming voice from heaven speaks, and yet some of the people who were there say, uh, I, th I think that was just thunder. Isn't that fascinating? Today, as we wrap up chapter 12 of John, we're concluding what is sometimes called the book of signs. The first half of John's gospel is sometimes called the book of signs um, because it is highly concerned with presenting proofs to its readers of who Jesus is. We've talked about the miraculous signs that John's presented, uh, water into wine, the healings, Jesus walking on water, Jesus re resurrecting Lazarus. Uh, but we've also seen John and Jesus make outright statements of divinity. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, so he's, he's giving us the, these very direct statements of Jesus' divinity. Jesus does this as well. He says things like, I and the Father are one. So it is appropriate that in this book of signs, if you will, that we would conclude with what is sort of the mic drop of signs, which is the booming voice from heaven. Remember also that in the storyline, we are now in Holy Week, uh, the final week leading up to the resurrection. So this is where we see Jesus really beginning to show the burden of what is coming. He's, he's starting to really kind of emotively show the burden of what is coming. It's like Frodo in the Lord of the Rings. Like the closer he gets to Mordor, which is the place where he's taking the ring to be destroyed, the closer he gets to what he thinks will be his eventual death, the heavier the ring gets around his neck and it is just dragging him down. We see a little bit of this um, in Jesus as well. Look at verse 27 in our text. 
Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. My being is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's kind of a rhetorical question. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So again, uh, the book of signs, Jesus's intentions largely have been to present himself and his identity to the masses and his call to the people uh, has been that people would believe and follow him. And as we've said, he's looking m- for more than simple intellectual agreement. He's looking for people to live as his followers by obeying his teaching. And so this has created all kinds of conflict, hasn't it, on various fronts. We've seen the conflict that uh, Jesus just doesn't look at all what people thought the Messiah should look like, right? He, he doesn't present as like an earthly king. He doesn't come in riding on a white horse, so to speak. He doesn't show up with an army ready to overthrow the Romans. He's not trying to whip people into a rebellious frenzy. Um, he just doesn't look at all like what people expected. They were expecting the new David, a new earthly king who was going to restore the splendor and glory. He was going to make Israel great again, right? Like that's what a Messiah was going to do. And Jesus shows up and in a way he is all of those things, but he's so much more as well. And this creates conflict. He's also claimed to be God, um, which people have just interpreted as blasphemy. Like they don't know what to do with it. Because you remember on multiple occasions, they've, they've been like, we know who this is. Like, this is, we know who his parents are. Like, we know where he, like, this is just some guy from this little village. Like, and he now says that he and the father are one. Like, what, what is happening here? So that has created conflict. And then also he's broken Jewish law as well. Now, I don't think Jesus has broken any of the law that we find in the Torah or in the first five books of the Bible, but he has certainly broken these sort of understood social cues at the very least that were commonly held among the people at this time, primarily in the ways that he, quote unquote, did not keep the Sabbath by healing people on the Sabbath, right? And by doing good on the Sabbath, he was breaking Jewish law. Now, in what is effectively his last call to people to believe and follow leading up to his crucifixion, this voice of God thunders from heaven and the people go, "Eh, it, it couldn't have been. That's how they respond. Some of the people go, maybe, maybe angels are talking to him. Like they're, they're trying to find some other explanation for what's happening. Look at verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's like Jesus is going, hey guys, this voice is not for me, right? I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't need to hear the booming voice of God coming from the clouds. Like, I and the Father are one. He is speaking so that you will hear him and believe in me. Right? This is yet another mark of identification for who I am, Jesus is saying. 
Every time God speaks like this in the Gospels, by the way, it's never for Jesus. It's always for other people. The two times that God speaks in addition to this are at Jesus' baptism and then at the transfiguration. And in both of those instances, God identifies Jesus by saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, he tells Jesus' disciples who are there on the mount with him, listen to him. Right? So literally the booming voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now do what? Listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. Guys, I don't need this. This isn't for my own good. This is for you. The purpose is always to validate Jesus's identity. So here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to completely miss the presence of God like the crowd in this account. We don't want to miss the call of Christ like the people in this account. Yet most of us go through our days with little to no awareness of God's presence and little to no attentiveness to the mission of Christ in our lives. And in some cases, we are misremembering or we're explaining away God's presence in our lives because it conflicts with our established schemas or agendas. Even times when God has clearly moved in your life, we are inclined to kind of go, eh, maybe it was this, or maybe it was this. We, we, we for some reason, want to find other explanations. How many of us, if a booming voice from heaven were to sound, and we're being real with ourselves, how many of us would say, you guys think that was thunder? That's thunder, right? Not the voice of God. Thunder. Everybody with me? How many of us would, would think that way, would respond in that way? The less attuned we are to the omnipresence of God, the more likely it is that we will seek to explain away his movement in our lives and in the world around us. C.S. Lewis said, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere, incognito. And the incognito, Lewis says, is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember, to attend, in fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. In other words, Lewis is saying the hard part is not finding God. We're surrounded by God. It's remembering him. It's not being, it's being in a state where we're not so like permeated by the things of this world that we have no ability to recognize the fact that the world, as Lewis says, is crowded with him. He is already here. He was here before you walked into this room this morning because he is the room. That's, that's some of what Lewis is getting at. Remember what John said at the beginning of his gospel? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
Just take a moment with that. There is nothing that exists that does not exist without him. Did I say that correctly? I think so. So any space that you inhabit is a space that has been made by God and that is a space that is crowded with God. It bears his fingerprints. It bears his marks. Any space, any person you talk to is a person made in the image of God. Any object you pick up is an object that has been made by God. In him, Paul says, we live and move and have our being. Your very being, your very existence, your breathing in and out, the functioning of your organs and your cells, all of these things are held up by our eternal, omnipresent God. We do not get him to come to us by singing the right songs or by getting the mood right or the environment right or by getting our state of gratitude or praise dialed in as if God is off away somewhere just waiting for us to get things right for him to come. No, no, no. He is. Right? What does he say of himself? I am. What does Jesus say? Before Moses was, I am. He is what is. Yet scripture suggests that the lusts of this world lull us into a state of spiritual amnesia. A state of forgetfulness. So just think about all the times in scripture where God has the people, particularly of Israel, set up rituals that are designed to help the people remember the Lord. And in particular, to remember his movement, right? That's what Passover is all about. That's what communion is all about. That we would be a people who are not lulled into a state of spiritual amnesia, into a state of sleep by our world and the things of our world, but rather that we can be a people who are attuned and attentive and aware of God's presence in the here and now, in, in each moment. If you remember the movie Inception, right? It's, it's like the deeper we go into this world, the more inclined we are to truly forget what is. And to settle for where we find ourselves. So the goal throughout Christian history has been to cultivate a constant awareness of God's presence through spiritual habit formation. To not allow our minds or our bodies to so deeply drink of the things of this world that we forget what is real and true. So so that if a booming voice from heaven sounded, our first thought would be, well, that must be God. What Lewis said is correct, though. There are two equally challenging things that have to happen. We have to come awake, and we have to remain awake. We have to be awakened to this reality, or what Jesus calls seeing the light. And then we have to remain in that reality, or what Jesus calls abiding in the vine. I want to give us a few cues this morning that can potentially help us with this. Uh, Some some mental cues and also some physical cues. 
First of all, I think part of the key here is that we as a people would be cultivating a state of prayerfulness. Uh, Paul talks about praying without ceasing. I don't think what he means there is that we would constantly be in active prayer, that we would constantly be speaking to God, whether verbally or mentally, but, but rather that we would be cultivating this state of prayerfulness where we are on some level in constant connection or communion with him, that, that we would be seeking to live our days in such a way that we are aware that the world is crowded with him. And I think there are a lot of ways that we can do this. Um, I think there are short prayers that we can pray often that remind us. I'm a big fan of the Jesus prayer. Um, I talk about this a lot. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a prayer that's been used throughout history across Christian traditions as just sort of a, it's just sort of a cue in, into getting into this state of prayerfulness. Some people prefer the Lord's Prayer, uh, which certainly is the way that Jesus tells us to pray, but that just throughout my day that I'm reminding my mind and my heart of what reality is. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's who he is. That's who I am. That's what I need from him, right? So, so those things are helpful to me. Also, you know, habits like silence, times of solitude, um, also scheduled times of prayer, just like, hey, I, beginning your day with prayer. Before I pick up my phone, before I get to work on other things, before I start making my to-do list, I'm, I'm going to, like, center myself in what is real, and what is true, and what is eternal. Um, I, I would definitely recommend at least a time of morning prayer and a time of evening prayer. You know, so like when you wake up and before you go to bed. And if you have space, a prayer at midday as well, at lunchtime. Um, that, that you would just set those in your calendar. That you would have a little alarm that goes off. And, and even if it's two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, that you would make space throughout your day for him. Uh, until you get to this place where I don't have to schedule him anymore because it's just a part of my rhythm. It's not the rhythm most of us have. So cultivating a state of prayerfulness. Uh, the next thing, and this may seem like ridiculous to you, but I also think that we need to, on some level, reduce the amount of comfort that we experience. Um, I think we need to find ways to reduce our overall level of comfort and luxury. The relative luxury that most of us enjoy lures us into this state of spiritual sleep. Um, one of the things we have to remember, I think, in order to stay in this place of recognition of God's presence, is one of the things we have to remember is our great need of him. That in him we live and move and have our being. That literally, I, like, I will drop dead five seconds from now were it not for God. That, that he is the one that is sustaining me and perpetuating my life. And yet, when I have no real material needs, when I'm not worried about where my food is going to come from or where my clothing is going to come from or if I'm going to have like, a, like a, a roof over my head tonight, like when none of those things are factors, I can easily get into this state, one, of thinking that I've gotten all this stuff for myself, that I've worked hard and I've done 
done the right things and made wise decisions, and so as a result, I have this lifestyle. But the reality is, is that there is nothing I have that hasn't ultimately come from him. And so I think we have to reduce the level of comfort that we're experiencing. We have to build habits into our lives that give us a greater awareness of our need, of our existential need for him. Uh, Two things that the church has done throughout history. Uh, The big one is fasting. I think this is a big part of the point of fasting that uh, so I don't miss a meal, as you (laughs) probably tell. Uh, My guess would be most of you guys don't either. And and yet when when I do miss two or three meals, suddenly, like I realize how fragile I actually am. And if you if you like, man, take it seriously and, and like miss like six meals or nine meals or something like that, like three days without food, suddenly you're in this place of recognizing that I, like, I am not as strong as I think I am. I, I cannot do for myself what I think I can do for myself. And that if God didn't provide my food, that I, like, I am just days away from death. And so one of the things fasting does for us is it gives us that awareness that God is our sustainer and it puts us in this place of need. Because if I have no need, what need do I have of him, right? The second thing is generosity. Um, So when I say that everything we have comes from the Lord, that includes your money. That includes your material possessions. And yet, here's what we do as a people. We want to hoard those things because we find safety in them. The more stuff I have, the more money I have, the the more I'm inclined to feel like I'm good. And again, I have no need, right? And and so even even if everything went south, I'm still going to be okay because I've got my Dave Ramsey emergency fund. I wish Jimmy was in here today. Um, (laughs) Right? So I've, I've got my $30,000 or my whatever in the bank. And so even, even, you know, even if I suddenly lost my job or whatever, the house burned down, like we're going to be okay. And I find safety in that. What scripture is calling us to, though, is to not find our safety and security in those things, but instead to find it solely in the person of Christ. That, that he is our provider and our sustainer and that we have no reason to worry about anything because he knows exactly what we need. Now, what I've said before, and I think this is very true for me, I'm not so much worried that God's not going to provide for me. What I'm worried about is that he's not going to provide for me at the level I want to be provided for. Does that make sense? Like, I I think I'm going to continue eating and, like, having a house to live in and that kind of stuff. My worry or my fear is that if I don't hoard things or if I don't do the right things or make the right decisions, that that the way God's going to provide for me is going to be less than what I actually want. So one of the things that, one of the ways we combat this is through extreme generosity, is through taking what he's given us, recognizing that we are meant to be stewards of these things, and then truly being open-handed as a pass-through for the things that we have, not viewing them as our things even, or as our money, but, but truly viewing them as his, and in that state of prayerfulness coming before him and going, God, what have you called me to do with the things you've entrusted to me? And so the more we cultivate generosity, the more we give away 
the more reliant we are on him, the more aware we are that the things we have actually have come from him and that we actually need him from day to day, from week to week. Let me wrap this up. Jesus tells this famous parable called the parable of the sower. In many ways, it's like the quintessential parable. It's like the archetype for a parable, sometimes called the parable of the soils. Um, Here's what's fascinating to me about this parable. In the parable, the seed of the gospel, the seed of the gospel is sown on four different types of soil. Uh, One of the types of soil is like rock hard, so the seed hits it, it bounces off, the birds come and eat it, nothing happens. Another type of soil is deeply fertile, so the seed hits it, and man, the the plant springs up, it flourishes, it bears fruit. It's exactly the kind of soil that you want. But then there are these two other kinds of soil that Jesus talks about. Um, and, And what's interesting about both of these types of soil is that the seed takes root, and it seems like you're going to have this amazing, flourishing, beautiful plant that, that grows up. But ultimately, either because the soil is rocky or because it's covered by thorns, the growth is choked out and the plant dies. And what Jesus says is that the rocky soil and the thorny soil, if you will, represent um, the person who has the appearance of belief but does not have the root of faith. And, and so when tragedy or crisis comes... They're out, right? They, they might have had the appearance of faith, but there was no root, so when hard things come, they're, they're done with this Jesus stuff, right? Um, or when, uh, in the case of the thorny soil, what Jesus says is when the cares of this world come or when the deceitfulness of wealth comes, they get uprooted. We see this kind of thing in real time in today's text. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So so we see this happening. The seed of the gospel is sown. There is the appearance, perhaps, of belief. But because I am more concerned about what other people think of me, or I'm more concerned about being socially ostracized, or I'm more concerned about the reputation of my family, I am not going to confess Christ as Lord. It's either thorny or rocky soil. It's one of the two things. So so the question for us today is this. How do we pursue having the seed of the gospel truly take root in our lives? And the basic answer is that we begin to live as people who don't belong to this present world. Tyler last week talked about the fact that Jesus says, if you want life, you need to hate your life in this world. If you want real life, true life, you have to hate your life in this world. And I think a part of this is beginning to live as people who truly belong to another kingdom. And who are growing increasingly uncomfortable with and unsatisfied by the things of this world. Who cultivate rhythms that begin to attune their minds and their hearts to the spiritual realm. To remember the Lord to remember that he is all around us, that we are crowded with him, and that what he has done for us through Christ is the greatest news ever. Uh, In short, we need a rule of life. We need a rule of life, not rules for living, 
um, but, but a structure to guide our habits and our rhythms so that we are increasingly living in a place of awareness and attentiveness to the presence of God. And this is what we as a church family are going to be doing at our retreat on November 5th. Um, We're going to be digging into this idea of what it looks like for you as an individual to construct a rule of life, Um, what it looks like for your family to construct a rule of life, and then also what it looks like for us as a church to construct a rule of life, a communal rule of life. Um, That's originally where that concept started, this idea of of a trellis, if you will, to guide our rhythms and practices as people. It began as a communal thing. How do we as a community, like what are the things that we're putting in place so that we can go through this world attuned and attentive to the presence of God around us and ready and able to respond to him when he calls and as he leads? So it's a little bit of a commercial. Um, But the worst thing that we can do is just sort of haphazardly make our way through our day Uh, and reserve times like this morning, Sunday mornings, to being our, our, our spiritual time of the week, or maybe a few time, a few moments in the morning, um, as if that's enough for life in this broken world. No, no, no. Jesus is calling us. Scripture is calling us to this deeper place of awareness and obedience to be people where the seed is truly taking root. And as a result, the plant is flourishing and fruit is born. Let us pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and truth. And we pray this morning, God, that your word would not return void, but rather as you speak it into our minds and hearts, we would seek to be obedient to you in the ways that you have called us. And so, God, give us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. Help us to hear your voice. Um, Help us to respond quickly and faithfully so that we might uh, be your people. And pray, Father, that we would not be like those who seemingly had this appearance of faith, but who had no root, and who, when hard things came, or when they became worried about their own livelihoods, quickly jettisoned you. May it not be so for us, Father. Uh, Give us courage, and give us endurance, and uh, truly uh, knit this community together around us, so that we might bear one another's burdens, and hold each other's arms up. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?